0: everyone. Thanks for your patience this morning. We've been experiencing um, some rather uh, abrupt and severe technical issues. Uh, Most of us are here now. Uh, We have one on the phone and one more yet to join us, Uh, but for now we'll get things started. Uh, My name is Dale Lunan. I'm the America's editor of Natural Gas World and welcome to uh, the latest in our Canadian Gas Dialogues Pandemic Edition series of webinars. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge, first of all, that uh, most of our participants today are webcasting from the traditional territories of the Treaty 7 First Nations, which include the three Blackfoot Confederacy nations of Siksika, Kainai, and Piikani, as well as the Stony Nakoda and the Sutina First Nations. Our discussion today will revolve around three key themes uh, affecting First Nations specifically, but even uh, as well as the broader Indigenous communities touched by energy resource development in Canada and specifically Western Canada. Our moderator today is Anne Harding, so I will turn her, she's with Community Relations Forum. Did I get that right? Close. Forum Community Relations. Forum, community relations. Sorry, I don't have my notes in front of me. Uh, So I'll let Anne kick things off and she will introduce our panelists and uh, direct the discussion, which I hope will be very timely and fairly and very forthcoming. Anne?
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Dale. And thank you, everybody, for hanging in there. Technology is great when it works and really frustrating when it doesn't. Um, so, so thank you, thank you for joining us um, and and having uh, having us with you. Okay. So we'll continue um, along, and, and I guess just for our panelists, and, and if we're not speaking, we'll get you guys to mute just so we can manage some of the um, that background noise. We're having mostly audio issues today.
2: So. Um,
1: so I'm just going to mute you here. There we go. So I'm very honored to to be um, a moderator for this distinguished panel. These are um, leaders, thought leaders, leader, organizational leaders, community leaders um, in Canada, in, in the Indigenous communities, and I am just thrilled to hear what they have to say. Uh, so so joining us today are Chief Councillor Crystal Smith from the Heisler Nation, uh, Stephen Buffalo, CEO of the Indian Resource Council, and Alicia Dubois. CEO of the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation and also co-chair of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Um, thank you so much. So I'm gonna throw it over to you guys to introduce yourselves and your organizations, but through the lens of economic reconciliation. So we hear a lot about, econo- or about reconciliation as a term and that this is something that's important in our country. Within the space of energy development, um, we see a lot more talk about economic opportunities for reconciliation and bringing that together. And so this might be a new term for some of our, our attendees. And I thought maybe if you can tell us just a bit about um, the communities or organizations that you're connected to, uh, as well as sharing your uh, definition of economic reconciliation, how would you describe that term? And, and maybe like one or two things that that your organizations are doing to, to support those efforts. So if I can get you to introduce yourselves but with with a bit of that lens, that would be great. Um, So Alicia, we'll start with you.
3: Sure, thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, my name is Alicia Dubois. I'm the CEO of the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, and as Anne said, I'm also the co-chair of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Um, Ultimately, both of these organizations act as a bridge between Indigenous groups, including communities and Indigenous businesses, to industry with the aim of supporting partnerships between Indigenous groups and industry. And ultimately, through the lens of economic reconciliation, my view really is that the aim for us in achieving that is to foster active Indigenous economic engagement and economic equality. So really what we're looking for here are um, mechanisms or ways by which Indigenous peoples can engage in the economy in ways they have not had the benefit of traditionally. Um, It's recognized that traditional um, economic practices are such that Indigenous people have been marginalized from the economy and also financial infrastructure. So building those bridges that facilitate partnerships and also access to capital so that there's the ability for indigenous groups to invest and not just be recipients of revenue dollars, et cetera, but actually actively invest and participate in uh, resource development, et cetera, is is really key to economic reconciliation.
1: Thanks very much. Thanks. Uh, Crystal, I'll get you to introduce yourself um, and, and pop on your camera if you're able to there. We saw you for a minute.
2: Good morning, can you hear me?
1: We can, thank you.
2: All right, perfect. I don't know what is going on with my computer today, so I completely apologize. I, I was the one creating the, the echoes in the background there while I was trying to get my computer working. Um, so good morning, everybody. My name is Crystal Smith. I'm the elected chief councillor of the Highsland Nation. I am also the chair of the uh, First Nations LNG Alliance. Um, I'm also a co-chair of the Northern First Nations Alliance, which is a new, newly formed um, organization here in Northern British Columbia. And I also sit on a, a panel of leadership of, of four communities here in Northern British Columbia for the First Nations Climate Initiative. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely a part of uh, a lot of organizations that aim to um, aim to. Uh, accomplish what the the previous panelist had had described what um, economic reconciliation uh, in her view was so in in terms of that um, in in hela territory, uh, economic reconciliation uh, is is a meaningful uh, partnerships that are established between um, i guess um, proponents in in our in our area, whether it be uh, through uh major major developments such as lng canada and the coastal gas link projects um but establish partnerships uh that for proponents that have been in our territory for for many years and and establishing the relationships um to improve the quality of life for for our members um through those partnerships and and agreements uh, it is definitely um a, a process that um is important to have the First Nations values um, and our and our and our culture um, be be recognized, be be respected, um, in terms of uh, the development of of the economy within our territories.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much, Crystal. That's great. And Stephen, over to you.
4: Yes, uh, thank you today for. Uh, having me on this panel with a, such an illustrious group of uh, panelists that we do have. Um, yeah, you know, we, uh, through the Indian Resource Council, we've been around since the early 80s and uh, primarily in oil and gas. And, you know, uh, the thing about the history of oil and gas is that we learned a lot of tough, tough, hard lessons in, in, in development, uh, protecting the environment and, you know, maintaining our, our, our communities. So through this resource, you know, we're a lot of our communities were able to uh, take advantage and, and actually set some uh, foundations with with uh, subsidizing the uh, the lack of federal funding that each community gets and and utilize the resource to to help build schools, provide education, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you know, the as we move forward, you know, our role has beginning has as, as, kind of changed you know we, we've been advocating for first nations oil and gas for for since our existence and and the 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 environment's changing and and uh, i don't know if it's a compliment with with the COVID crisis or whatever but we're finding out things that uh you know our position as first nations and our governance is getting a lot stronger and and our position standing up for our own rights is definitely amped up um uh the, the reconciliation we talk about has been a word that has been utilized for since the liberal government has taken over uh our, our country but that word needs to change to reconciliation <laughs> we, we need to see uh some more movement in, in our communities and our capacities to, to to allow us to uh, actually start maintaining and, and fending for ourselves you know I, I'm, I'm very honored to, to sit as the Vice-Chairman of the uh, Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation. I get to work with Alicia, and, and quite honestly, I'm, I'm learning a ton from her. I'm learning a ton from our <laughs> board. And and it's that relationship with the government of Alberta that has allowed this to happen. And I hope it has a positive ripple effect that we see this across this country, this type of format. But, uh, you know, the, the the economic reconciliation is happening now it's just that our our, we, our communities and our members and whoever else we have to be prepared and, and welcome it with open arms, uh, even though it's it, it might be different territory for for a lot of communities. You know, it's it's just having our governance structure in place and the optimism of, of taking advantage of something that's probably in your traditional territory that's happening and and uh, see see if we can be a part of it. In, 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 the financial benefits and as well as the uh, possible uh, the, the work that may come from it for community members is, is something that we just have to explore. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Stephen. And Clifford, welcome, uh, glad that uh, we were able to sort out the the connection um, and have you join us. So we're just starting with introductions of, of yourself um, and, and giving a bit of a lens of economic reconciliation. So if that's a term that's out there, what does that mean to you? How would you sort of define that? And if you can tell us a bit about yourself as well.
5: Well, I am a colleague with. Um, uh, Chief. Um, uh, of the um uh, the northern nations um uh, group and um uh the the I'm also with the um uh, working quite a bit with the um, province on um uh, the BC treaty commission as well as um uh working with the Northern Nations um, so the Northern Nations Coalition is a new group um but it stretches all out um to the cross Canada and um, we're still developing that process Um, it's an economic um, arm for indigenous people and finding not only um, uh, organizations or or business opportunities for Indigenous communities but also um, facilitating um, resources um, to go along with that so that's all in its developmental stages Um, but um, With Chief Crystal, um, we've been um, working with the First Nations Alliance um, uh, in BC here, uh, and uh, you know, supporting that because it means a lot to our Indigenous communities as far as um, uh, gas. We recognize that there are some limitations um, with regards to environmental issues, but um, those are they're much better than what currently is happening in the world, and so. Rich, that Anyway, um, I'm also a leader with um in Northern mm-hmm. Columbia. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. That's great. Um And and so I'll sort of pick up on some themes that I have heard and and shift into a, a, the next conversation that we want to have, but we talk about sort of meaningful partnerships and that that's what we're looking for is, or economic engagement, just not being on the receiving end, but sort of this two way of what is that meaningful participation and um, action as, as Stephen said, not just talking, but, but <laughs> taking specific action. And so I'm, I'm wondering, and, and we'll just sort of throw it open for, for anybody who wants to respond. Um, if you can give us an example, an example of how an Indigenous community or group has taken action and participated in a meaningful way or had that meaningful partnership with with energy development, if there are just some examples that we can pull out for folks. Go ahead, Alicia.
3: Um, I'm happy to talk about um, very strong procurement-based partnerships. Um, Because that really does clearly require action on both sides of the equation. So it means you need an industry partner that has procurement policies and procedures established that acknowledge the need for indigenous supply chain members to be very active in their procurement. Um, And so and of course, on the other side, you need you you need the right partners i.e indigenous partners to respond to those policies and be prepared to engage in a meaningful way as part of the supply chain and we've seen incredible examples of this in the Alberta oil sands Mm -hmm. and and the echo effect of that means much higher standard of living for indigenous groups that are participating as part of the supply chain and like incredibly low unemployment rates Um, annual salaries that surpass the national average by approximately $20,000 per year. I mean, it's it's very impactful because all of this echo effect of that partnership means there's an opportunity for for social wellness within the communities, political strength for, um, for the leaders that are guiding those communities, and then these positive interactions and partnerships actually beget even more positive partnerships. And I'll, and I'll give an example because if, I think numbers are important to, to sort of set that context for us. If we look at the federal government, it's the largest um, uh, procurer of supplies and, and services and goods in the country. So I think their annual procurement envelope is just over $220 billion. And if you look at what, and they do have a program that is, you know, supposed to facilitate Aboriginal procurement practices, and if you look at what they actually do, according to recent statistics, is um, I think it was the 2018 year. um, We see in the last three years, the average dollar amount that actually goes to indigenous supply chain members is between 60 million and 100 million. So that equates to about 0.3% of their total procurement envelope and this like this being highlighted to them is actually what led to them setting new targets for themselves we refer to it as the five and five so they're going to aim to enhance indigenous procurement within their envelope to five percent of their total envelope in the next five years so that's a huge growth and then in contrast if we look at the activity we've seen in the oil sands it's quite impressive so, uh, from what I understand, in 2017, Imperial Oil's um, procurement with Indigenous groups was around 220 million in that year. For Syncrude, it was around, I think, about 350 million. And in 2019, Suncor's um, procurement with Indigenous suppliers was over 800 million. This is this is significant, and and that's what's driving prosperity for that region, and that's what's creating and setting the stage for even more meaningful partnerships in that region.
1: Thanks a lot, Alicia. Part of my earlier earlier time was with Suncor, setting some of those early procurement policies, and recognizing that you absolutely need that intention on behalf of the organization to drive that, because that's the opportunity in the supply chain, right? Is is how it um follows I'm, I'm curious um are there examples sort of that others want to share from the community perspective maybe some specific examples of, of those meaningful partnerships or, or economic action
4: well i uh, i would say that you know when, when you're participating as an owner now at least you have a say you're at the table you know and, it, and it's it's way past tokenism you know uh obviously with the developments that are happening everyone's scared of a bitumen pipeline you know the social media and, and and everything that's out there about bitumen and how it moves through a pipeline is so overamped that they don't take time really to really see both sides of the story on on pipeline development and and uh, the monitoring that goes on with our regulations here in canada you know it's world class what we do in canada is world class to protect the environment but everyone's still scared of it and you know when 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 you're part owner of say for an example of a pipeline um not only the financial benefits you see but you're in charge of it now you can have your people monitor that type of infrastructure uh to ensure the safety of your environment of your uh traditional lands and and obviously it's part of your culture you know uh that's that's what we're not really pursuing and that i think that's Something that we all have to chase uh, to to really investigate, you know. Just because someone says it on Facebook and on Twitter it doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> and and when when some of these uh, these these actors, these Hollywood actors, and these activists that come forward, you go know, you, you have to take it with either sugar or salt, <laughs> depending on what you want to to ensure that you understand the full the full dynamic of what they're really arguing about. You know, and it's it, it's to the point where you, you do your own research and you find out truly what it means. You know, there's, there's a lot of great intentions. Green energy is great intentions. Um, you know, we talk about solar paneling. We talk about uh, creating power or energy in different forms. And really, that's what it is. And as we as Indigenous people connected to the earth, connected to nature, uh, we have to investigate those opportunities to ensure that we're not... Uh, one, we're not hoodwinked. Two, that our position is in a strong, in in a, in a place where you have a, a strong say to, to really, one say can't do it that way because of this, or we have to pursue this alternative to uh, for for the greater good. You know, that's that's kind of how I see it. Thanks.
5: And if I may, um, there's a lot um, at the local levels that could actually happen. Um, And I think um, uh, Chief Smith's um, community is a great example in terms of what's happening within the um, oil and gas industry, um, where there's a lot of um, developments that um, have been happening from the partnership um, uh, level on uh, making sure that there's not only ownership um, by First Nations, but also um, allowing for other partnerships. Um, Chief Smith, through the Haisla um, group, have actually extended um, the invitation to all all Indigenous people um, and, you know, people who are employed there, Métis, Inuit, um, First Nations, uh, you know, those living um, uh, within their communities, away from their communities. But further to that, um, you know, the whole, all those social issues like housing, for example, are being addressed. You know, the community, the, the community concerns with regards to substance abuse violence against them um, women and children you know the child care issues um all of those immediate um issues um are are highlighted by um uh, any kind of um uh, economic ventures that are being um uh, offered um but i think the important part what what um if we use um uh, heisler's example with regards to um uh, what happened there is that people came forward, industry came forward with with funds. Um, so it wasn't just a partnership on paper; it was, um, uh, you know, a partnership um, uh, by the Heisler people along with um, other First Nations and um, uh, the industry. So, there, as um, uh, Stephen has mentioned, you know, it's that ownership piece. When you take ownership on it, we have a whole bunch of responsibilities that come along with that. Um, and now now we're responsible for highlighting those responsibilities and and what are we going to do about it um within the, within the Heisler example we're finding a lot of um, entrepreneurs who are coming forward you know through through that um, issue of procurement um uh, people who are who are developing new jobs and um, uh, creating more employment for for our people. the whole issue with regards to um, uh, transportation. We're finding uh indigenous transportation um that has come up and uh indigenous ownership um uh within stores and um uh different opportunities that are there. Uh the whole environmental uh issue that um Stephen also mentioned, you know, that's heightened as well. Everybody's looking at um, how can we protect our, our 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 lands that have been given to us by our creator and so you know, these are things that um, uh, at the at the grassroots level make a huge difference. But now the the opportunity with regards to not only on the oil and gas, we're looking at them. How do we how do we um, deal with them? Um, forestry, mining, um, aquaculture, you know, agriculture, um, and a whole bunch of different streams of um, opportunities that are arising. And so, you know, those opportunities are there. And we wanna make sure that um, all indigenous people um, are are being able to um, uh, participate in that. And I can't um, say enough good words about the Heisler Nation in terms of opening that up and and sharing a really good model in terms of um, uh, sharing with other indigenous communities and non-indigenous partners. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Clifford. Well, Chief Smith, now we need to hear more from you about, about those great models or about some, some of those specific on the ground examples, if you can share some. And I think you're on mute. So we'll get you to come off to be able to there. Perfect. Okay, can you hear me now? There. Sorry,
2: I, I started. <laughs> um, so um, would you be able to rephrase the question again so that you can, I can have a little bit more, um, I was so concentrated on everybody's answer
1: for sure I think what we're looking for is sort of building on the idea that um, economic reconciliation is about meaningful partnerships and and sort of two-way engagement what we're looking for are some specific examples um, for what what that might look like in community or, or on the ground in terms of examples in your community of meaningful partnerships
2: Okay, um, so I think uh, one one important piece uh, that we're we're definitely uh, is a huge highlight in in terms of my personal um, respect uh, is is the partnerships that we we've been able to establish with our neighboring First Nations, as Cliff has alluded to. Um, in prior to to contact each of our communities, had our our economic um, activity in between uh, our communities in, in terms of our traditional trades and, and uh, as, as such. Um, and, and throughout the years, uh, we've, we've somewhat lost that and, and had a disconnect. Uh, it essentially, um, a, a lot of the, the Indian Act um, policies kind of pit us against one another over the years and, and territorial boundaries uh, definitely put a wedge between some of our communities in a political um, manner. And through opportunities such as LNG Canada and Coastal Gas Link, um, we felt that it was absolutely important that we, we sh- essentially share the wealth that's, that's being provided in our communities. And, and from that, we've been able to establish partnerships with communities such as CLIFS uh, when it comes to employment opportunities contracting employment uh, contracting opportunities and as well as uh the biggest piece that that I I focus on is the employment and training for long-term careers uh based on the LNG Canada project another piece um that definitely makes me emotional and very proud is our ability to through um many established uh partnerships is our focus and our um, ability to invest in revitalizing our culture and our language. Um, A true strength of our First Nations identities is exactly that. And most First Nations, um, unfortunately, have lost that due to um, past trauma in in our history in this country. And we're fortunate to, to witness the work of, of our of, of having a dedicated uh culture and language department uh that that's their sole mandate is to develop curriculum that um allows us to have fluent haiza speakers in in about 10 to 20 years um those are all those are all established through through partnerships that we've never been able to do before um, we're able to run um Programs that meet the needs of our people today—we're uh, allowed to, we're we're able to, um, essentially break break the boxes of policy that have been imposed on us from from INAC for for centuries, and not work for INAC or I don't know what they're called, sorry, um, but we're able to work for our people. We're able to uh, we're able to develop meaningful programs that meet the needs of our people and not outsiders telling us what we need to do. Um, so it, it's definitely um, been inspiring, uh, and, but that does not go without saying that all of this doesn't come without challenges. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of our nation to, that, that is willing to partner um, with, uh, with any entity that provides uh, an improved quality of life for our people. And I, I truly believe that establishing, re-establishing the partnerships with our neighboring nations is
1: is one of the most val- valuable ones. Thank you. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. And I should have mentioned earlier um, for our attendees, if if you do have questions, we'll we'll try to leave a, a bit of time at the end. But feel free to type them in the chat, and if we can sort of weave them in, I'll I'll work on that as well. So. If you want questions or follow-ups, feel free to type those in. Um, where I'd like to take the conversation next is is picking up on um, on some of those those challenges, or I guess pieces that um, that seem to make things a little bit harder or more complex. And, and I'm going to sort of reference that complexity um, of working in in Indigenous and non-Indigenous partnerships um, and and in consultation. And so I'm, um, Chief Smith, you mentioned Coastal GasLink and the great opportunities that, that those partnerships have brought to your community. Um, I think many Canadians, as many Canadians that I know, um, were surprised earlier this year to, to learn that there can be multiple governance systems within, within Indigenous communities. And, and so there was a lot of media coverage around uh, the Selatan community and coastal and gas link. And, and so I'm wondering, and, and maybe um, Clifford or Chief Smith, if, if you might be able to offer just for, for those who are still trying to understand sort of that nuance and complexity, um, what what different governance structures might exist in, in communities? Um, and speaking from, from your own experience, recognizing that it's different across Canada, um, but also maybe what different roles are served by, by different leaders and, and also what they have in common.
5: Um, we can just speak a bit to that. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, you know, I have the unique um, position to be um, uh, a hereditary leader, along with um, having served a number of years um, in our elected chief and council. Two totally different governing systems, um, uh, but the opportunity of working together is um, uh, great in in this area, um, where. The um, uh, chief and council, unfortunately, through the Indian Act, was imposed upon um, indigenous communities, um, uh, and um, the hereditary system pretty much um, pushed to the back. Um, As a result of that, you're finding a resurgence from hereditary um, systems, which some communities use as family groups or um, uh, clan groups or, you know, there are different um, systems across the um, country that um, use the hereditary um, process and um, are finding through the new reconciliation a new form. Or it's not a new form of governance. It's a reawakening of the um, governance system that used to be there. Now, having said that, you know the challenges that are there in terms of um, marrying the two together and finding a way to um, uh, have both um, uh, systems. Um, you know, play a, a critical role. I think Kikatla has um, done an exemplary job in terms of um, bringing that together. So on a regular basis, um, uh, both chief and council, the elected chief and council and our hereditary table come together, um, recognizing the matriarch within that, that within that um, hereditary system, um, which has been, um, you know, backburnered even further. So a lot of our, our traditional people believe in, in the... Um, you know the role of the matriarch for example which is huge um in our indigenous communities um but a lot of that has been put out you know through um you know the the missing and murdered women's um piece i think you know was long long in coming it, you know that should have been done quite a while ago but the, you know we have a long way to go in terms of rebuilding our, our governing systems Uh, A lot of that has been lost um, by some communities and how how do we bring that back? You know, what Crystal was talking about, um, skills, training and education. We have to develop that capacity within our communities. The Watuitan are a very good um, example of, um, you know, pushing the envelope in terms of um, where the hereditary process is. GITSAN is doing exactly the same thing. They have their own um, agreements. with the governments in terms of how to how to move things forward, um, and so the more that the hereditary system um, starts reawakening and developing a process, um, unfortunately, I think the federal government sees the hereditary system as a a social um, social uh, governing system, and and really there's nothing wrong with that when you look at the leadership of of uh, Uh, the hereditary system where children are brought up to be leaders not only leaders within the political stream but also leaders within language leaders for culture leaders for um uh you know uh, food sustenance um, leaders for the environment and so on and so forth and perpetuating that by having the next in line there's always somebody next in line that's up and coming through that system where they're brought up brought into the big house or they're brought into the um uh the the feast feast house uh, or the pot latching system uh and and you know you you see that um graduation and capacity building that's um layers deep um within the hereditary system uh but the same you know with regards to um uh, elected chief and council there is a process before elected chief and council that has been well established by um, uh, ISC now formerly uh, inac and and you know that those two have to be um, brought together uh, and um, there is there is a way because we're talking about our brothers and our sisters who have been elected and those who have been born into a hereditary process and in the hereditary process if if a house um, has lost its leadership um, process, there is a way of bringing that house back in. And the whole community working to um, make sure that that house um, ends up with um, a leader, or that clan ends up with um, a leadership process. Um, and so we've we've experienced that as well in, in Kakatla. And so there have been um, uh, people who have been brought up in, in that system and taught what that process is all about. So a lot of that is through the um, uh, the feasting system and all of those um, ceremonies. Um, and laws are brought in. So reconciliation today has opened the door to that. It also has opened the door, provincially federally, to Indigenous laws, to the acknowledgement of Indigenous laws, and the allowing of um, Indigenous laws to prevail. So all of those are currently being negotiated through the new UNDRIP, um, and you know we want to make sure that um, we play a role in that, and that's where our responsibility comes into play. You know, it's one thing to have UNDRIP and all that, but it's up to each and every one of us to continue to push that envelope in terms of what does that actually mean. And uh, business is one of those huge portfolios in there. It's one one component of um, the overall structure. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Clifford. That's really helpful. I think just such an important um, and explanation for, for people who are reading headlines and seeing sort of flashes of news and trying to make sense of it and, and thank you for offering that steven were you looking to get in there
4: yeah. uh just to follow up with mr white and uh what he's been talking about uh you know even our community we've adopted our own traditional uh electoral law you know to, to help our people and, and and to be honest you know um my my father was the chief and the the current chief now They they still uh, not in a formal way, but they, they go and meet with our community elders on certain issues that are troubling the community, and, and they get direction from the teachings that they had been taught. And even further to that, you know, uh, they, they, through ceremony, ask, you know, if we believe in a higher power, which we do, uh, ask those questions for guidance on, on certain things. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, 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 it's it's amplified, unfortunately, in Wet'suwet'en, Just because of a a national infrastructure project, and and, uh, there's always questions about it, and and we have to respect the natural law that the the people of Wet'suwet'en have, you know. And and it's uh, we can't decide it for them, and and, uh, you know. But at the end of the day, you know, you have two governing bodies that that are kind of I think they're at at, uh, a little bit of a conflict on deciding on the the coastal gas link. You know, and it's. Uh, I hope there's uh, some uh, some closure to it soon because uh, as what, it, what what has happened, you know, and you look at the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, you know, uh, some of these environmentalists have been taught to use the word free prior and informed consent, and they say you did not have my free prior and informed consent to do this, and and. Uh, the, the intention of that declaration was to protect human rights of our, and to acknowledge human rights of our people. It was to be used as a shield. But now we're finding through this, through the environmentalist action and, and movement, uh, the lawyers have taught these environmentalists to use that declaration statement, free power and informed consent as a spear. So the, the the direction of the leaderships that are elected by the communities that want to participate, that want to see the financial benefit, that want to see the working interests on this pipeline. They want to provide that economic development opportunity to communities now being kind of held up. And, and uh, I, I hope there's some closure into that someday because that's going to set a precedent going forward for for the country. You know, we we, we talk about different forms of governance in, in our communities, and, and it's really being prepared to, to deal with, with the current business and how fast it moves. Mainstream society moves pretty quick, as Alicia will tell you, As a um, that uh, we have to be able to adapt and move as quick as the business moves and to make the decisions as soon as we possibly can so we don't miss out, so we don't lose out or we'll get taken advantage of. And, you know, it, it's, it's difficult, but uh, we're getting close. We're getting there. Thank you.
1: Thanks Stephen and uh, Chief Smith I'll I'll go to you next I see you're off mute and and just a note for participants we did get started a bit late so I think we'll probably go a little bit past the hour Um, but this is being recorded so if folks need to need to leave they'll get the recording as long as our panelists don't have to end right away if you do send me a message Um, and, and so Chief Smith will go over to you.
2: Thank you um i i just like to start out um by by saying that um anything that i that i do say um i mean no disrespect um to to any either side um when when we're when we're discussing our 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 cultural leaders um our hereditary chiefs um, however in, there are successful uh examples of of how uh, our governance systems um, essentially, can can come together. I think what is um, I, w- I won't repeat what the other two panelists have said. Um, however, I think one of the main um, components of that discussion that happened um, in and and it's been going on longer than January. Um, but I think what is being lost in this conversation are the people, um, regardless of of um, hereditary or, or your titles. Um I I feel very strongly that um, both governance systems have a have a obligation to our people. And I believe that throughout all of this, that the the our our people should be put in the forefront. Our people should be giving either leadership uh the mandate as to where they want to see themselves in, in 10 to 20 years. Um, I believe that there's reconciliation um, is required in between our own communities and that cultural identity, um, as I stated in my previous um, response, a a lot of that cultural identity and and each community in this country is at different levels when it comes to um, that attachment and and that um, different stage within that revitalization in their communities. Some held onto it very tightly and others haven't and through that process, a lot of the the cultural passings have been have been somewhat changed in in that handing down of the hereditary names. And when that happens, a, a lot of um, conflict arises between community members um, on the belief of who holds what name. And to be successful in in our communities, I I believe that those issues need to be resolved within our communities and then a mandate from our people as to how they want to see their leadership formed and and i feel that when you when you get to a consensus and and have your community support 100% who they decide who who leads them you don't have that disconnect and I, as i stated kikatla has a very amazing um, system that, that works for their community. Um, and and it is definitely something for for communities that aren't as advanced in that cultural um, aspect to to view and to, to take into consideration when they do get there. But I think the 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 ultimate topic is is our people. You know for far too long we've we, we've had no no solutions for suicides. No solutions for poverty. No solutions for um, domestic abuse. No, no solutions for for substance abuse. And and all the while, our people are are living their their trauma of their past history, whether it's residential school, whether it's the Sixties Scoop, or whether it's the murdered and missing Indigenous women. You anyway, know, all of those factors, and even that, even the Indian Act, still suppresses our people. And we need to find solutions for those issues today so that we we continue to heal and move our people forward to to, to meet that gap of the quality of life in comparison to all other Canadians. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Leisha?
3: The speakers on this panel are so knowledgeable, so inspiring and really effective at setting the context and i think the takeaway for partnerships is that this is not about westernizing people this is about supporting prosperity in a way that allows indigenous peoples and communities to honor and live out their traditional values and practices and ways of life while still contributing to the economy. These two things need not be at at odds with each other. And that's that's the important um, balance I think that we need to find as we proceed in supporting partnerships in the economy, is always recognizing that there are very different lived experiences that need to be honored and respected as part of the process.
1: Very well said. Thank you so that much. Was,
2: yes, that was an amazing summary, Alicia.
5: So, if I may um, uh, and uh, you know from a, a business um, perspective, you know a lot of the business um pieces that are taken and I know that um, Stephen and Alicia have done a lot of this, along with them, um, uh, Chief Smith. Um, you know, around the holistic perspective of um, working with Indigenous people, recognizing that the the Indigenous people come from a holistic perspective, and not just looking at one one particular item. So when they're looking at a pipeline going through, how does that affect the environment? How does that affect the the um, uh, animals and and the air and um, you know the ground itself you know and so you know from a spiritual perspective I know that a lot of indigenous communities are you know the prayers and offers that go forward um, not only in the negotiations but also in the development of all of these activities um, because we do have a, a critical responsibility from an indigenous perspective as the caretakers of mother Earth, um, and we want to make sure that um, we start bringing all those in into balance, we also recognize um, the positive developments that can come out of a a true partnership. You know, all of the work that we've seen that's been going on within the north of British Columbia, um, and that couldn't have been done without them having an industry partner. And so we greatly appreciate all of that. And um, I agree with um, Elisa, you know, that. there are, there's some very knowledgeable indigenous people throughout this country, and we need to tap into that knowledge and expertise, um, and we've been left out of it too long, um, and it's just the turn of the century that indigenous people have been invited into this process. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Steve, I'll go to you, and then I'll ask like a final sort of wrap-up yeah. question.
5: Go for
4: it. Just, just, just to add, you, you know, you're now seeing, you know, it, it's something that I've always recognized through mainstream uh, business is that th- they're always looking for a policy or a manual to, to deal with First Nations <laughs> and, and, you know, some sort of guide or reference guide to, to, to create those partnerships. But you're, you're definitely seeing this trend and it's the ESG, the Environmental Social uh, Governance, uh, Corporate Governance Structure. And, and I think part of this can in, be embedded into that you know because it's it's important that you know if we are gonna be partners or if we're gonna work on something together that uh, you know we understand each other and, and that's really divulging back into a lot of the history and and when people go back into history you know they're ashamed that this was put on our people <laughs> and, and you know they, they want to hide from that stuff and but but at the end of the day the, the, the learning from it is that uh You know, uh, we we can definitely work together moving forward once you understand where we came from or or some of the trials and tribulations that First Nations people have endured in this country. Uh, But uh, the opportunities are there and they're slowly coming to the forefront. You know, I want to acknowledge and and recognize the the, uh, uh, Hydro One in Ontario. I think all the First Nations in Ontario, and I honestly can't remember how many there are, but I think three of the First Nations are 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 ones that didn't participate in that investment, and, and it, it's tremendous. It's a big success story that you don't hear, because one, it's good news. You know, if it was bad news, you'd hear about it all the time. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's just you know another example of how First Nations and governance and and, and government and industry can work together for the better, betterment of our people. That's all.
1: Thank you so much. So I'm gonna um, combine sort of a couple of questions and, and ones that we've we've seen come through in the chat, and, and what we're gonna do now is ask for your advice. So we're gonna go around and, and have some closing comments asking for advice. And so, some one of the questions around advice is, what advice do you have for for proponents if there is tension within an indigenous community? Um, sort of what might make things better or what might make things worse? So what sort of advice do you have for a company looking to work with a community in a respectful and meaningful way when there are tensions? And then I also want you to tack on there your advice for the individuals who are listening to this call. So my personal view of reconciliation is it's concentric circles and kind of starts with an individual connection. And so I'd love for you to offer like one tangible thing that people on this call um, might be able to do uh, and and action that they might take. So, double double-barreled question. If anybody wants to take take a first cut,
4: I will. You know, I I think you know to when when stuff like that comes forward, you you got to think about the relationship, and and, and you got to be transparent. You know, uh, having a hidden agenda. You know, for as say for industry, uh, to take advantage of a community is. Is, you're not going to be successful in today's day uh, but you know having that transparency will really open the eyes and give that opportunity truly to the nation and the, the, again the relationship you know i joke about it all the time you know we see consultants lawyers and different uh, individuals come in our community to try to help us you know? and some are good at it and some of them leave legacy i call those uh, individuals the him okays or the okays when they walk in the community and, and, and the elders are asking who that person is, the chief will say, him okay, him okay. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, th- these people leave legacy, they leave, uh, they help with infrastructure, of the community, they help with playgrounds, they help with rec centers, they help with certain programs that the government won't fund, and these are, these are the people we want to work with because they understand and they have that relationship with the community.
3: Thanks, even Alicia. I'm going to leave um, esteemed speakers to speak at the end. I was hoping to jump ahead of Stephen so that he could be after me. My one piece of advice is be accountable for your own learning. Be accountable for understanding that Canadians were not afforded a true history lesson, but there are many sources. That people can go to to get a true history lesson, and that's very important. And not to expect for your potential partners to be 100% to play that role. 100%. You have to be accountable. You have to you have to understand that you know you're an active part of this equation, and that means doing some research and. Contemplating some self-awareness, contemplating what that means, and um, and also to be patient because relationships take time and effort and patience. And um, there's a lot of learning and lived experience to learn about far before you're going to be an effective partner. So that would, those are my two takeaways.
5: Love it. Thank you. Keith
2: Smith? Uh, I'm I'm following up on on the the two responses. I think um, along with being and and having that accountability is is the follow through. Um, You know, establishing relationships and then having discussions. um, There's a lot of um, fear when it comes to any type of development within our territories uh, regarding uh, failed promises um when i first became an elected leader i could i I'd, I'd listen to stories of of other proponents that had that had been through our territory and essentially had been gone and and what was said to our our leadership at the time of of what would uh come to fruition once those entities were were running or when they were done and our people that had been around in those years um still remember that so when we come from uh, a place of, of not having trust, that's where um, I can see uh, that that lack of an um, effort on the First Nation side um, coming from. Um, but I think the most important thing is uh, in establishing the relationship with the First Nation is the the respect of of the the that the rightful land landowners um, there are certain things within our territory that we hold hold very close to our culture um, and and knowing what is important to the First Nation and respecting that and and working um, within those within those goals and objectives um, it goes goes a long way. Uh, when we were establishing the relationship, our, our relationship with LNG Canada when they first came to Kitimat was not um, was not one that was was great, and and that took a lot of time and effort on on part of our elected leaders, our people, and our staff. And they they didn't only leave it to the conversations of elected leaders; they pulled in our community to get their insight as to what. Um, their recollection of our culture and what certain areas in our territory meant for our people so I think that the respect um, the respect of the the knowledge holders of our traditional territories is is hugely hugely important um, i I just received an email as i'm i'm on this on this call and a a possible proponent that i had a had a meeting with about two weeks ago just emailed me and, and said hello in our language. Um it it's it's minor, but I definitely we definitely take notice to people that um recognize uh the the importance of who we are as Heisla people. So thank you. Uh,
5: if I can um <clears throat> You know, I do honor the um, uh, group that's here with regards to their, you know, their expertise, Um, you know, Stephen, Alicia, um, uh, and Chief Smith. um, uh, The business um, environment has to recognize that all the leaders throughout Canada, Indigenous leaders, are taking a huge chance, a huge risk, in terms of um, reigniting trust. Um, when, when we look at them, when we look at the history of Indigenous people, the residential schools, the 60 scoop um, of children, the high incarceration of Indigenous people, the um, uh, children who are, are, you know, still um, within the ministry of um, child care, uh, all of the, you know, the high poverty of um, uh, a lot of um, Indigenous um, communities, the whole erosion of trust has been lost by Indigenous people. And so when business people come in and offer them something and the broken promises that have come along with them, treaties as well, you know, those things have an impact. And um, the leadership that has been provided here by Chief Smith, Steve and Elisa, you know, is tremendous. People don't realize that these people are basically opening the door to business Coming into the community with a great deal of fear on the side of the First Nations communities, um, wondering what are you you know what are you asking for, um, and and you know how is that going to affect each and every one of us. So trust is a major issue. Um, tensions are a good thing, and I would I would say that anyone who's coming into a community um, and and see the tension. I've been I've been involved where um, people have come into the rooms with. Um, uh, war war garments and, and you know, masks and everything else, um, not because of COVID, but um, you know, the army, that kind of thing. You know, but once you start sewing them, be very visual about it, have flip charts and have um, presentations, have handouts for people um, you know, that they can understand what, you know, what those um, opportunities are and how it's going to affect them. The handouts are so critical in terms of being able to um, uh, work with our people. So, um, while I was a child, they basically said to me, "Look, God has given you two eyes to see from, two ears to listen from, you know, and and the same with your nostril, but He's only given you one mouth. So use those in direct proportion to what it's been provided to you. And so the the listening." The act of listening when we come into Indigenous communities as to what their concerns are, and make sure that we um, actually start addressing those. Those all come under what's masked as uh, tension, and and so it's really important for us to be actively involved in in the listening of uh, where the communities are coming from. When Kitkata signed on to the um, Canada LNG. It wasn't just the community that came forward. The elders came forward. The kids came forward from the school. Um, and, and the hereditary um, leaders along with chief and council signed off on the document together, you know, in front of the whole community. And there was a ceremony that actually went on because they basically recognized that there was something important that went on here. So that's the kind of thing, I think, that if we go into Indigenous communities, we have to have that that air of, um, of, of wanting to understand. You know, seek to understand rather than to be understood, you know, by myself. You know, um, and just to get that information from our community in terms of where we're going. As far as reconciliation is concerned, we have to reconcile that. that um, I'm involved with the city of Vancouver and, and the provincial government and say, you know, I, I don't understand why you guys need to be reconciled. Well, hang on here. Look, let's take a room. Now let's um, invite different ethnic groups in, into this room. So let's say we have 10 people in this room and now the indigenous the owner of the room is put in a corner because he's now got to share of this room. You know, and and so reconciliation is now that you've taken part of my room. You know, how are we going to reconcile that? How are we going to acknowledge that? First of all, we have to acknowledge that. You know, and so and then we can um, get into reconciliation. But develop to develop policies like equity, for example, in that scenario, you can't, because how can it be equitable if there isn't reconciliation first? You know, in terms of um, how are you going to be able to address the issue that um, this person has been displaced by at least one-tenth of their area um, in this case um, throughout the country it's less than seven you know or around seven and a half percent of the territory that indigenous people used to um, govern and in treaties you know it's down to that where it's about seven and a half percent um that has been um, uh, provided to Indigenous people but there's a lot of um, problems around that, you know, subsurface I- issues. You know, the governments are basically saying, well, you can't go skin deep, you know, it's everything above the ground. You know, but what about the minerals, the oils and everything else that are, are in there, you know? All of the resources are, you know, and so it, the reconciliation has got a, a long way to go. We're just getting started on that. Um, and people have got to recognize that, why don't the Indians um, get their act together? Well, hang on here there's been a couple of um centuries if not many decades under which indigenous people have been suppressed in my community for example in order to change a light bulb INAC of the day basically said well hang on here um, we're going to send out an electrician to change that light bulb you know because we weren't allowed to do it ourselves to change that light bulb now imagine the expense where my community is is on the island so they not only had to send somebody from, from Vancouver to get up to Prince Rupin and to fly out to Kitkatla to change a bloody light bulb. You know, and so we've got a long way to go in terms of um, uh, this reconciliation piece, um, but we, we definitely are open to um, industry, you know, negotiating in in very um, op- openness um, with uh, indigenous communities. Thank you. Thank you so much, Clifford. And-
1: um you did a fantastic job of ask, answering the other question in the chat box that i hadn't uh, hadn't asked which is is um indigenous affairs or INAC or Diane helpful um so thanks for answering that with <laughs> in your response there um thank you so much so much to to our honored panel and just our speakers thank you for sharing your wisdom and your experiences and your insights um, this has just been wonderful i have taken so many notes with fantastic quotes you're just really great job so thank you and thank you dale for for hosting us all
0: thank you Anne. Uh, a wonderful job of directing what in my opinion is a long overdue conversation in canadian society not just in the business community but in the wider canadian public Uh, Thank you, Alicia. Thank you, Chief Clifford. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Chief Crystal. I do appreciate your time this morning. It was a fascinating discussion, and I think we need to have lots more of it within our circles uh, and with our outside people as well. Again, thanks, stay safe, and keep well.
2: Thank you. Thank you.